0: Hello and welcome to this rather special episode of Need for Speech. I know I keep saying special many times but this is actually a special one because I have gone international for the first time. Joining me today from across the pond from Manhattan is Professor Gaurav Sabnes. Gaurav is a professor of marketing at Stevens Institute in Hoboken, New Jersey. Gaurav, thank you very much for joining me on this Skype conversation uh, all the way from New York and thank you so much for taking time off from your busy schedule, uh, teaching and doing research. And thank you for joining me on the show.
1: Sure. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be on this podcast. Uh, I've always had good experiences being on podcasts, especially India-specific topics. So I look forward to uh, talking with you about all these things that you have in mind and hello from uh, sunny but cold manhattan
0: so uh gaurav can you just give a give us a brief introduction of yourself uh yeah sure so i will
1: uh, sort of go back in time uh all the way to the beginning because i know we have this background in common both of us are from pune both of us are from engineers so i'll start from where i am right now and then sort of go backwards Uh, I've been at Stevens Institute of Technology in uh, Hoboken as a research track professor for six and a half years now. So I just recently got my tenure. So you know what tenure means is that you have job security for life as long as you do the basics like teaching and don't like uh, bother anyone, (laughs) rather harass anyone. Uh, Before that, I got my PhD from uh, Penn State University. That's in central Pennsylvania with a specialization in uh, strategic social media modeling. That was the topic of my dissertation. Uh, before that, I used to work for IBM for a couple of years in sales and marketing in their server division. Before that, I got my MBA from IIM Lucknow. And before that, I was at uh, COAP, uh, which falls under Pune University where I got my engineering degree in electronics and communication. So that's my career path going all the way backwards. Right now, the research I do as well as the teaching I do focuses mainly on the quantitative aspects of marketing. My research focuses on social media strategy on, on the one hand and some sales lead management stuff on the other hand, although the bulk of my research is in social media strategy.
0: So Gaurav, you were an engineer, you graduated from COEP and then you went to IIM Lucknow and like now you are in, you are a professor of marketing. So how does like one go from being an engineering graduate to studying an MBA, doing an MBA and then, you know, becoming a professor of marketing? Like, so what kind of, you know, brought along that decision to switch from, you know, doing a job in in doing a job to just you know going into academia
1: so when when i was growing up i always i was good at two things i was good at what i considered like writing creative stuff english etc and i was really good at math so uh, being good at math the thing that like you know the peers and everyone around you keep talking about is engineering is something that is good for your career and it gives you a lot of career options so my parents had never pushed me towards engineering. My parents were like, do whatever you want. You, sh- you should be a journalist or a writer or do whatever you want. But everybody around me was going into engineering. So I decided to go into engineering because I was fortunate enough to get good marks in 12th. Uh, I wasn't really s- smart enough for IIT, I guess, but I at least got into like a CIP, which was a good college. And once I started doing that process and once I started learning engineering, I slowly realized it wasn't something that was exciting. So I struggled a little bit in one semester. I even got a couple of KTs, honestly. Uh, But after that, I got over that hiccup. And I managed to finish my entire engineering with a first class uh, grade. But it was something that was just not exciting to me. I could not see myself working in uh, electronics or in software and being happy in the long term i didn't i still didn't know what i wanted to do i just i knew what i did not want to do and along came this opportunity called cat and this is back in 2002 when cat wasn't as big of a deal as it is now so cat which is the entrance exam to iims uh, i remember i was one of just three people out of 500 in coep like taking that test seriously everybody else was either getting jobs or taking the gre and going uh, planning to go for their masters abroad So I thought, okay, let's see about CAT and, you know, if it lets me postpone my decision about what I want to do. So I took the CAT again, was fortunate enough to make it to an IAM. So I went straight from CIP to IM without working. And there, you know, like if you know about uh, MBA, you have all these different options as a manager. You can be in finance, you can be in consulting, you can be in management, you can be in marketing, et cetera, et cetera and those are very intense courses Uh, you have to study a lot but it's also I found it to be very different from engineering as in in engineering it was like somebody would come give you a lecture and you just had one exam at the end of the semester yeah whereas in IIM the pedagogy was a lot more spread out like you you would have these quizzes every couple of weeks you would have presentations you would have uh, group discussions and things like that so It was something that made you pay attention every single week as opposed to what traditionally was the model. I hope it has changed, but what traditionally was the model in engineering in Pune University that you you are just tested once at the end of the semester.
0: Let me tell you, it kind of hasn't changed as much because you now have two tests. Like at least when I was in engineering, they had uh, one was the the mid-sem and one was the end-sem and that was pretty much it. And you just only studied for those.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Like it is... Like at the most, it has gone from one exam to two. But that whole model that you need to keep learning something throughout still doesn't seem to be in place. And that is uh, not great. But in IAM, they did have that. And I got the sense that most, if not like most or all of my IAM professors really enjoyed what they were doing. Like they enjoyed the teaching. They enjoyed interacting with students. So... Uh, getting a deep uh, understanding of all these different fields of uh, business administration or management, uh, I was able to appreciate what I was learning at a more intimate level for the first time. And I found out that what excited me the most was marketing, because I thought it was a great combination of those two skills I thought I had, which is that I'm good at creative thinking and expressing myself, writing, etc., and i'm good at the quantitative stuff because marketing also involves some uh, quantitative analysis and it also has like a lot of stories different anecdotes like it's just something very interesting uh, at least for me so when people started talking about okay what job do you want to get after uh, mba one job that i felt like going after, which most of my peers did not, was academia, because I saw all these professors up close and personal who were really excited about what they were doing, who were you know seemingly leading a very happy, satisfied life, as opposed to some of the <laughs> frustrated professors I had encountered in the past. So I was like, okay, maybe this is something I could do, because I come from a family of teachers and professors, so three of my four grandparents uh, were in that field. I thought maybe I should be a professor of marketing. So I went to talk to Professor Avinash Mulki, who was my <coughs> excuse me, who was my favorite uh, professor there. I told him, listen, everybody's talking about like consulting or banks or tech or uh, FMCG companies. My long-term plan is to be a professor. So he said, oh, great. That's great. And he said, you should just work for a couple of years. Don't wait too long. Uh, wait, work for two, three, four years, get some experience in the field and then get a PhD from the US. It's like, even if you can become a PhD in business from India, it's like, if you go to the US, you will, the whole world will be uh, an oyster for you. So you'll have opportunities all over the world. So that's what I ended up doing. My plan was to work for a couple of years and uh, get my PhD. And that's what I ended up doing. So in IBM, I was able to, Work really in uh, you know, in coordination with the channel managers. There was a decent amount of quantitative analysis involved there, as well as interpersonal interactions. So it gave me a good preparation for my PhD. So then I ended up applying for to a bunch of schools, got through to a few, uh, chose Penn State because I thought it had the best alignment in terms of my research interests.
0: And yeah, here we are. And now you finally got tenure. So unless and until you do something like really bad stuff, you won't be fired. So that's good for you, I guess.
1: Yeah, as long as I teach what I'm expected to teach and I'm not like uh, racist or sexist towards anyone, which I promise not to be ever, uh, I'll (laughs) I'll be fine. So that is what tenure means. Because tenure is meant as a way in American universities and I think a lot of Indian universities are starting that as well. I know ISB Hyderabad has it is that once you prove your research jobs and your teaching and your service uh, uh, qualifications, you can then be trusted to pursue academic research and academic freedom without fear of any reprisal. So it's, it gives you academic freedom. That is what tenure does
0: right so uh, you uh, teach social media and you have published a lot of papers in social media and marketing and digital marketing and just just all of that so by the way, a quick side note here so one of my pre- in one of my previous podcasts i talked i spoke to dr bhushan shukla who is a psychiatrist here in pune about social media and mental health and the funny thing is i actually met him via twitter And listeners, I don't know if you know this, but I also kind of got introduced to Gaurav via Twitter again. So, uh, like uh, some of your thoughts on uh, where all of this, you know, social media slash digital slash where do you think this whole uh, digital marketing space is heading forward next?
1: Um, So the social media or the digital aspect of marketing is pretty much here to stay. In fact, funnily enough, we were just discussing some of our uh, course curriculum design strategy going forward at a meeting uh, last week. And some of us were thinking that this word digital needs to be gotten rid of because everything is digital now. The word digital made sense because it was something that was in contrast to analog. But the analog world has pretty much gone extinct. So, when we say digital marketing like the first question that comes to my mind is as opposed to what like what exactly is non-digital marketing okay newspaper probably ads probably like hoardings. print or
0: radio i'm
1: guessing yeah exactly yeah. so like maybe newspaper ads or holdings or uh, radio but what component of marketing do they make up really like almost everything even the tv we watch now is uh digital transmission so i was just thinking that there needs to be some other way of thinking about how we communicate with each other because social media or uh, e-commerce all these things that we consider digital have become so universal now that that is the new reality so in fact if anything we have to start separate courses called analog marketing or offline marketing like because that is now the exception rather than the rule
0: so uh, what do you think of because in the last few years uh i uh, Of course, the most popular case of this is Netflix, wherein uh, Netflix have kind of a huge Twitter presence now. They have a huge Facebook presence and they're very self-referential in their marketing. For example, uh, last year, uh, Radhika Apte starred in a lot of Netflix shows and originals and just content licensed by Netflix. And there's a meme going around that Radhika Apte is in everything Netflix. So Netflix kind of turned it on its head and they themselves put out a short video a parody of sorts wherein they themselves got in on the joke. Whereas earlier, if brands received like some flag or some fire from uh, the consumers, they didn't have much of a way to, you know, go against it. Like They had to just issue an apology or something. But here we see Netflix, you know, just owning the joke and getting in on the joke. And I think this may help in building brand loyalty because just through that thing, I, I just thought, oh, okay, Netflix is not like the others. It seems like a very fun brand kind of a sort.
1: Yes. So for any brand to stand out on social media, you have to have one of uh, a few things. One thing is either you need to say something that gets people's attentions in the sen- uh, attention in the sense of novelty. Like, oh, I've never seen this before. So like, for example, Amazon had that whole drone delivery service or uh, Elon Musk send that car into space. So it is something that is just new. It's like completely out of the ordinary. Or then Apple keeps introducing some new products. Google had that thing where this uh, voice bot called and made uh, reservations, and uh, people at the restaurants couldn't tell that this was a bot. So one way to break through that clutter, because there's just so much clutter, I will not call it clutter per se, it's just that there are so many conversations happening that for something to break through, it has to either have novelty, or then it has to have what in marketing we call an affective impact. So affect as in it activates some kind of an emotion that you have. It could either be humor. It could be like uh, uh, empathy or like that awe kind of feeling, which is why so many dogs and cats have their pictures going viral online because people are like, oh. Or then it can be outrage. So you know, it can be something that makes you go viral. Obviously, as a brand, you don't want to go viral on the basis of outrage like that has happened with Starbucks and a few other companies in the past. Uh, So the two things that you have left is either novelty, if you have that in your product or in your portfolio, you use novelty like the Tesla folks do, or you go with something like either humor or something ironic. And Netflix has done that very well. In the US, Wendy's does that very well. I've seen more and more brands starting to realize that you cannot be that old stuffy PR, like, okay, this is our official position, this is what I am saying. You need to adopt some sort of a tone that will get an affective response.
0: Yeah, see, because even today, consumers and just users of social media, we have gotten so used to being bombarded with ads like left, right, and center, and most of them being like very, very similar. This product is like coming, this is not coming, discount de like, just whatever it is. So, I think most of us have now become tuned to just ignore most of it. So, I think then that becomes even more challenging for brands. Okay, like, since your traditional tactics are being ignored, because it's mostly just noise, you have to then come up with innovative ways of capturing your uh, audience's attention. So, th- that's what you're saying, right? Like, you have to find out really novel ways and just work more harder than what you had to do in the past to, you know, just generate more sales. Now, my second uh, topic with this is uh, where do you see uh, influencer marketing going? The the term influencer is very, uh, you know, hotly debated these days, wherein some people think, oh, influencers get everything for free. Brands think they can just, you know, use uh, the influencers, like pay them much less than what they would spend on a traditional ad campaign. Like they could just get similar levels of reach without spending much. And what's your take on all of that? Yeah, so uh, influencer marketing is
1: something that even though it's it has become a buzzword recently, it has been around for a long time. So I was just uh, looking, I was, I was at an American Marketing Association conference this weekend and I saw like this review of that general field. And they were talking about how there's, there are papers going back to as early as 70s and 80s where they used to call them marketing mavens. Uh, So that was the term. Like Today we call them influencers. Back then they were called marketing mavens. And there was no internet or anything back then. So it was just about identifying who's the most influential person in a particular, let's say, neighborhood or a particular school, then contacting them and having them be your ambassadors of sorts. So one of the companies that did this really well uh, early on was Tupperware. So Tupperware used to have these things called Tupperware parties. And what they would do is they would identify who was in a supermarket and buying things for storage and who seemed to have like this very friendly personality who was talking to a lot of people. And then they would have them host these Tupperware parties because when Tupperware came out, like it's something we now take for granted, which is boxes that close and nothing leaks out. But in the 80s, it was a revolutionary product. So instead of advertising it on TV, they started having these Tupperware parties in neighborhoods where uh, they would, it was almost like kitty parties where women from the neighborhood would come and then they would look at these Tupperwares and then they would buy. it. So like it's been around since uh, a long time where you identify who's the most influential and have them do marketing for you. Of course, with social media, the reach of these, what were initially called marketing mavens and now influencers has gone up. And I... So... so among marketing academics and professionals there is debate about whether this has a future whether it has its utility so what i'm saying here is my own opinion it's not like the definitive
0: uh, finding so in this podcast itself is need for speech (laughs) all about opinion so yeah you are most welcome to you know please express your opinion freely yeah so
1: it is my opinion that this is the wave of the future like I, i think it is not even the future it is the present because when I talk to my students and I talk to younger people, they take these influencers a lot more seriously than they take ads. And if you think about it, you know, it's just an extrapolation or just a large scale version of what happens in our own lives. right? If a friend comes and tells you, hey, you should watch this particular TV show or you should buy this particular phone, in your mind, that carries a lot more weight than some stranger telling you that you should buy this. Now, in the past, we were only restricted to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers in terms of who we trust or whose opinions we trust. Now, thanks to social media, if there is an influencer who you've been following, who you like for a long time, then that it, it is that same relationship you have with them. In fact, sometimes even a stronger relationship. So, for example, I, I remember once you were talking about one of my students, uh, Marcus Brownlee, MK, yes, PhD. Yes, just a side
0: Just a side note for my listeners here, uh, Professor Subnis taught MKBHD, the star tech YouTuber of the generation here.
1: Oh, yeah. So like, uh, so yeah, he graduated. He was, I think, in the very first year that I taught at Stevens. So he's also a Stevens graduate. And at that time, he was slowly starting to build his following. And I know like many of many of you and many of us, I will take Marcus's words more seriously than some of my close friends who might be talking about tech so if anything the influencers are slowly becoming even more powerful in their opinions than uh, our close friends used to be and the key to it is that they have they have to grow organically like their popularity doesn't have to be top down like somebody came and said that okay this is my uh, you know this is the person i think is an expert It's just that slowly their following grows and then it reaches that 100000 or million level and so their following has that credibility.
0: So I think uh, in my case, it would be kind of slightly opposite because I do not usually follow all of these, you know, influencers or target. say, let's say like all of most of these influencers are millennials and their target audience is also like a millennial audience. So. I personally, and I might be the exception here, I do not follow most of these people and whenever something of such sort just pops up in my feed, my brain just ignores them because I know, okay, you are an influencer, you are paid by this ad agency, like you are being paid to just, you know, promote this product. Whereas in the case of say MKBHD, he is also sent products to review and uh, he does not necessarily do marketing stuff on his like main channel. He positions himself more of a tech youtuber and a reviewer and a tech geek and i think one of the reasons why most people you know take him seriously is because he is much more of a tech geek rather than a tech you know say influencer he's become an influencer yes but at heart i think it's just like he's doing what he loves doing whereas you know some of i won't take names as some of these other people on instagram they just like to show their flashy lifestyle they go to like fancy vacation places, they are sponsored by hotels, they wear fancy clothes, they are sponsored again by fashion brands. You know, it, it creates a sort of a fake uh, image of that person. And uh, this is something we just touched upon in my episode with Dr. Shukla about how, what kind of, effect all of these things have on your mental health as well so i think that aspect also has to be considered and i know i'm the exception here since i ignore most of these things like my i filter it out as i would filter noise it's noise to me but i do understand that to most other people to most millennial it it also sells them that uh, aspiration thing right because hey, here's this guy or girl who's my age and I can relate to them very well and they are living this lifestyle. So maybe even I can live that lifestyle.
1: Yeah, So, that, so the influencer term can be maybe ca- categorized into a couple of uh, different types. So one is, like I said, somebody who gets organically uh, popular and builds credibility and somebody like Marcus uh, or some other folks who get that credibility in terms of their opinions. And if they are expressing an opinion, it is taken seriously in terms of convincing you or persuading you to buy that product or at least consider that product. So that is on one hand. And there are people who self-identify as influencers that is always a red flag for me as well and maybe even i'm not a millennial and i'm much older so maybe it's a different thing for me whenever somebody says that they are influencer i tend to like kind of you know snort it's like you know people saying oh i'm a thinker you know i'm a thinker or a dreamer and but but whatever they're doing is still fine because companies are still uh, giving them free vacations or whatever like these resorts are giving them free vacations because they still get some visibility
0: and i was talking to yeah, obviously it's it's, it's much le- like the expenditure on that is much lesser than what they would spend on a traditional ad campaign which is why they're doing it in the first place like a, a stay for one person is, is obviously going to cost you much much less than a full-blown ad campaign for whatever you're trying to sell
1: yeah so i was in chile staying at an airbnb where this guy has Just just a couple of years ago he started this place and I was just talking to him about this because I was interested in getting his perspective. And he said, Yeah, I choose an influence. like he gets a bunch of emails every single day that I'm an influencer, I have these many followers on Instagram, etc. etc. So I said, How do you decide whom to give that free vacation to? And he said, Yeah, simple heuristics, like a certain number of followers, how many likes they get. So like he himself has that. Uh, calculation in his head and he says i typically t- try to schedule them during off season because he said every single room that i give out in the peak season is a cost to me but in off season half my rooms are empty anyway so i'll have over some of these influencers if the word of my property reaches even let's say a thousand people and even if two of them turn up that more than covers up Whatever this is, because I have just pretty much taken a no cost thing. So for them, it's more about exposure because, you know, like the thing about these people who self identify as influencers and who are pretty much living, I wouldn't consider it a flashy lifestyle per se, but yeah, aspirational for sure. You know, because it's mainly travel and eating and uh, so on. So it's something that people always want to do and more and more. uh, you know, we have more and more folks getting into the upper middle class or uh, the wealthy classes who are able to now afford these vacations. So if you get exposure to them, it's good for them. So you know, I personally, even if I, even if I'm a little skeptical of the intentions and the credibility of these influencers when it comes to travel or whatever, I would still much rather get my exposure or information through them than through travel agencies or brochures or whatever, because those would be even more well-manicured and not representative.
0: So, Gaurav, you have published many, many research papers in the field of marketing. And so, even I don't know, like, what what work do you do in marketing? Because, like, I'm sure it's not like science where you keep inventing new stuff or, you know, anything like that. But so, what do you do in, like, what is research in marketing Like,
1: all right so yes and i i get this question a lot from people like when i say that i'm a marketing phd people are like huh how do you get a phd in marketing like what would you write a dissertation on and the world of business academia research or business academic research is sort of hidden from the general view because when people think of business education they think of books so they think of philip kotler or all these books that are written and then used and taught in classrooms or then they think about like books like business uh, stuff like, I don't know, like Talib or then somebody's autobiographies or uh, things like that. But the actual day-to-day research that academics do in business, at least in the US and Europe, is a bit different than that in that it's more basic. It's at a more deeper level and it answers more fundamental research questions than, let's say, taking up a case study and talking about it in specifics. So we try to collect more data, we try to uh, base our findings on theories that already exist. And marketing has two mother disciplines originally. One is economics and the other is psychology. And in recent years, computer science has also sort of made its way into the picture as a second mother or second father or whatever you call it. When you're thinking about how consumers make their decisions or how companies try to sell their products or if products succeed, the economics aspect comes from the fact that how companies make decisions, how they should allocate their resources. The psychology aspect comes from how consumers are going to react to those offerings or make their decision-making. And then the computer science aspect has come in from the fact that we now have social media everywhere. So it kind of dictates the trends of uh, how the data also like
0: out. data analytics right like because you have real time access to real time data as opposed to like say Nielsen ratings for TV shows or whatever yeah or collecting like a lot surveys. more
1: data yeah or collecting surveys so uh, the kind of research we do is we are answering broader questions so I'm not when I write a paper I'm not trying to understand hey why did Blackberry fail and Samsung succeed or I'm not trying to answer the question of hey why is GM in trouble but why is Toyota doing well those are like Those are more uh, front-end level uh, questions which consultants can answer. What we are trying to do is we are trying to build theories and we are trying to build ideas that help answer these questions. So just like whether when you're trying to calculate whether a plane that you are designing will go as fast as you like, the calculations are based on more deeper fundamental level principles of how physics works or how mechanics works. Similarly, what we are trying to do is we are trying to build these basic fundamental level ideas that can then be applied elsewhere. So that's just a general overview of uh, what business or marketing research in academics is like. Uh, My research has focused on a couple of these uh, deeper level questions and it has focused on the social media strategy aspect. So I had one paper which was looking at how competition is viewed among uh, competing hotels, and who are you most vulnerable from, whether it comes to a fake review attack or just a strategic attack, like in the sense that somebody who goes after you. So the logic there was, let's say I am a Holiday Inn um, at the corner of 20th Street and 1st Avenue, who is my competitor? Like Some people are nowadays looking at reviews when they make the decisions. Who is my competitor? Is it a residence in that is one block away, or is it somebody else who is six, seven blocks away? And we say that depends on the features. So we say that hotel customers make their decision based on features like, oh, does this place have a pool? Does this place have a uh, good Wi-Fi? Does it have free, uh, does it have free parking? Does it have a free breakfast, etc.? So what we are saying is that as opposed to physical proximity, which people have looked at, the Person, the your biggest competitor is going to be based on the ones that you have the most reviews in common with, uh, or rather the most features in common with. And the weight of that importance is going to be how important those re- those features are inside reviews. So at a broader level, what we are saying is that we need to rethink how hotels or restaurants or any of these service companies think of who their competitor is. So in the food world, for example, let's say you have a favorite shawarma place you go there and you see the or it's too crowded so now you're going to decide okay where do i go next will you go to another shawarma place or will you go to your favorite pizza place depends on how you think right like maybe you are just craving shawarma of any quality or you are just craving something you really like so if you're just craving shawarma of any quality you will go to Another shawarma place, if you're just craving something really favorite of yours, you won't go to the next shawarma place, you'll go to your favorite pizza place. So we are trying to do, we are trying to model that behavior and then the outcomes of that behavior. So that was one of the papers I had. Just to illustrate like the deeper level points we study. And for this, we got like about 500,000 reviews of uh, thousands of hotels. And then we ran a predictive model Using all this data, and then we came up with what we called a visibility score that we thought would be good in identifying fake review attacks as well as just general competition strategy.
0: So this this thing was, I think I suppose this is very tech heavy and like you scrub through reviews and yes. very like quantitative heavy, right? Yes. So my
1: research is tech heavy and quant heavy, but not all marketing research has to be. So the people who do research in consumer behavior typically do experiments. So, for example, if they want, like I have a colleague who does work on whether smell, like the smell that is there in the air, you know, most of these fancy stores will have some kind of a perfume or some kind of an incense. So whether that makes a decision, makes a difference to consumers' decision making. So for that, she would run two separate experiments. It's almost like medical two by two uh, blind study experiments. Where one group will get that treatment, another uh, which is that particular smell, another group will not will get nothing. That will be the control group, and they will see how their response is. So that is not as tech heavy; it is more behavior or psychology heavy.
0: So Gaurav, uh, there's this kind of you know joke between uh, you and at the rate curious Gawker on Twitter, who's another friend of us. Uh, he says that uh, you don't like work enough or just work hard enough. So I'm guessing one of the perks of being a professor is that you get to choose what kind of classes you want to teach. And you also probably get a lot of, you know, just just free time, which probably explains why you travel so much, why you cook so much and why also you drink so much. (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: uh, that is true. And that was one of the reasons... Well, that was one of the personal reasons I made the switch from a corporate life to academia as well. That at least back when I was working in India, and I do I hope things have changed. The work-life balance aspect was non-existent. Like you left work, even if you achieved all your targets, even if you did everything you wanted, uh, your boss expected of you. If you're leaving office at like even let's say seven p.m., they would be like, "Kya half day?" and then you would get called in on Saturday, Sunday. You know, your boss would not feel any compunctions calling you at like 2 a.m. and asking what happened to that particular thing. So like that whole work-life balance aspect was just completely askew over there. And again, I had seen my professors that I am living a much more, you know, relaxed life while also enjoying what they were doing. So that was also another thing. I was like, I don't want to burn out by the age of 30 trying to ca- climb the co- corporate ladder. And that is one reason I shifted to academia. And the good thing about business academia, honestly, is that the money is good. So, you know, compared to some of the other, like, I know that in social sciences or engineering, the money is average, like in business academia, I think because we run these MBA programs and because uh, we at any time can switch to a corporate job at a managerial level, I think the salaries are above average. So I learned about all this and I was like, okay, I'm going to switch there because I want a better, hap- I want a happy life. I- When I die, I want to like look back and not talk about, oh, this is the client I won for that particular company. I want to talk about experiences and like the good things that I did. So yeah, there is a, especially in the US, if you're on a research track, you get the flexibility to pick the research that you want to do. Your teaching load is relatively low. So I only teach two days a week and the rest of the week is completely up to me. Nobody's asking me, Kyaj, half day if I, you know, if I teach a class nine to twelve and I just go home, nobody's like looking over my shoulder and saying why you're going home. All they care about is that I publish papers and that the students are happy with what I'm doing. So like as long as I do those things, I have that flexibility. So I have been able to travel a lot because of that and uh, cook a lot because of that so any people out there who want a work-life balance and a fun life while also doing things you like consider business academia <laughs> it's a it's a good life as long as you know you can have those outputs of uh, top level research papers and you can teach yeah, well. you have
0: to be really smart in the first place to get into academia yeah that's a very high bar to cross <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's
1: it's no different than getting into an MBA program, or you know, or any other kind of a top level program. So, I don't think it's that different. It's more about whether you have that inclination or personality to be an academic. So, you know, like I see many people applying for MBAs abroad. Like I have a few friends who apply, applied for second MBAs. Like they got an MBA from India already, and then they apply for a second MBA abroad, thinking of it like as a career move. And I also tell them like, listen, if you if you are okay putting in five years, a PhD might be a more satisfying outcome. Like just again and again, it depends on their personalities.
0: So, Gaurav, uh, since you are kind of from the other side of the industry, can you just just tell our listeners why uh, textbooks cost so much in America?
1: Yeah, I mean, I personally don't subscribe. Uh, don't. Uh, assign textbooks in my courses anymore. And I think the reason they are so costly is that people are willing to pay for them and they are just assigned by a few professors. So, because almost every... So, what happens to us in <clears throat> India when we go to college is they're usually paying out of pocket, right? Unless you're in a very expensive course, like a top-level MBA or a med school thing or something... Usually you're paying out of pocket. So how much you're willing to pay is driven by how much money you have. Whereas in the US, something like 90-95%, I'm just like picking an an estimate, of students study on loans. So because it's their loans, the banks are willing to give loans because they'll rack up as much uh, of a debt as they can and then they'll pay it off because they make sure that these students are credit worthy. And as a result you know textbook publishers are like okay i'm going to sell this at 125 dollars in the us because it's all going on the loan anyway so it'll just the student will pay this off for the rest of their life whereas if students were paying out of their pocket and suddenly there would be a revolt like oh i don't have 125 dollars right now to pay for it and that's why it's uh, in my opinion that's why it's happening because they can get away with it is like the <laughs> uh, short answer And but when they are selling the same textbook in India or in China, it'll cost maybe five, ten dollars at the most. Like I've had like when I used to go to India during my PhD days, I would like, you know, usually when you're going from the US to India, people from India are like, hey, bring me a laptop, bring me a phone, bring me this, bring me that. I used to when I was in my PhD days, and when I used to go to India, I would get requests in the opposite direction from friends. Like, hey, can you get me the Indian edition of this textbook, that textbook,
0: this textbook? <laughs> so I was like doing the opposite because the text would be the same, except the price would be lower, right? lower. Because, because the pub, yeah, it's it's published globally, and uh, prices are region specific. Yeah. I remember, that, like, I remember one particular textbook
1: was a uh, Kasella and Burger. It was a statistics textbook that was used in our PhD, uh, PhD and also master's level uh, intro to stats courses. And that was a really like necessary textbook. It was one of those that you have to uh, assign students. In the US, it used to cost $90 back in the day, I'm talking 10 years ago. And in India, when I went to like Upper Burban Sok, I got it for something like 600 rupees, which at that time was less than $10. So, you can imagine the margin they're making when they sell in the U.S.
0: And also, uh, I think uh, this is a very question like pertaining uniquely to you because you write uh, science papers and you write research papers and you publish them and uh, versus... So, uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, just pretty much every research paper out there being behind paywalls or... Just being kind of, you know, inaccessible to students without... Who are like not... Who can't shell out a ton of money. Because you are the opposite side of, say, my listeners who would be... Who want to, you know, access all of these papers.
1: Yeah, so I think of the paywall, at least in academic publishing, as not great. But it is... Part of it is a necessary evil. So if you start putting everything out there for free, like what makes... Top level research, top level is peer review, right? So so instead if you just if you just write a paper and put it out there, it'll be out there. But what makes it a top level paper or a highly respected paper, and it appears in, let's say, the New England Journal of Medicine or the Rand Journal or the Journal of Marketing Research or whatever, is that it has gone through a very rigorous peer review process. So these people are the gatekeepers, the editors and the reviewers are the Gatekeepers of the ideas, they make sure that no falsehoods get through. So, you know, that's why no no WhatsApp university type stuff gets through. They are just focusing on the facts and uh, scientific method and all that. All that requires resources and those resources have to be paid for by someone. And that's why these publishing companies uh, like uh, Elsevier or Springer have come up. And like, that's how they started, at least that you need resources, you need like a staff to handle these papers, send them to reviewers, and all that. And for that is what you're paying for. So the very aspect that there is a paywall is not as much of a bother to me, because for these companies to keep going, they need to make money from somewhere. So unless the entire world shifts to a free, like, I don't know, like some kind of a donation only process, it is going to be like that. But I'll add one thing. Journals give you an option as a publisher, as 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 an author, to make your paper open access. So for one of our papers, which is about 3D printing, uh, we have done that. So we paid like something like $200 or something. And that gives us like the copyright or the ability to take that paper and just put it on our own website. And more and more professors are doing that. So I think that is kind of the way forward maybe because... When you get an A-level or a top-level publication, you as a professor get very tangible benefits, which people have calculated financially. So for a business paper, for example, they say that over a lifetime, one A-level publication in something like the Journal of Marketing Research or Marketing Science is worth $250,000. Like it is that much, that's how much it contributes to your career. So I think more and more professors will now just start paying that small amount of 200 or 250 dollars to make those open access and yeah i'm certainly like starting to do that
0: my guess is if it weren't like open access what so behind the paywall what kind of you know what's the do you guys even any get any money that is you know uh, that is you know paid to the gatekeeper or because no, i have no we, clue how no, that We worked. professors
1: don't get any money at all uh in finance in fact you have to pay <laughs> Pay them to even get your paper reviewed, at least in marketing, it's all uh, free. But no, we do not get any money. They mainly get the money from universities and, you know, mainly from universities, university subscriptions, and some top level companies. So, for example, if I, somebody like me who is a professor at this university, or any of my students, they want to access those papers, they easily can because our universities subscribe to all these things. There is a case to be made that the margins there are pretty high and the subscription fees are pretty high. I guess that eventually comes down to the negotiation skills of university buyers. You know, like not, not no market is perfect. So, But yeah, like my, my larger point is that the paywall existing is a necessary evil. It's not great. And that there is a way around it, which is that the authors can just make it open access, like pay a little bit of money to those companies and make it open access
0: so gaurav uh, thanks a lot for you know agreeing to do this skype call on a tuesday tuesday evening india time and tuesday morning your time so thank you for taking time out of your morning and uh, doing this for my listeners i really appreciate you and uh, congratulations on your tenure and i hope you can get to make an india trip soon
1: thank you uh, thanks it was great talking to you and you know holding forth on all these topics close to my Hard, and we will also remind Curious Gawker that I was able to record this on a Tuesday morning <laughs> when he is probably at work.